to Four Hour Journey. Today we consider the ancient story Pigeon and the Great, mainly by listening to my translation of it and then to the commentary provided by Father Mapple in Herman Melville's great American novel, greatest of all American novels maybe, Moby Dick. Also a few translation notes and reflections on the story, including a brief observation by George Orwell, the author of 1984. Children's versions of the ancient story are often entitled Jonah and the Whale. These tellings can be with an imagination and humor that well accord with the adult version. Jonah means pigeon, a good name for this flighty comical character who is swallowed, then vomited by a fish, who is irritated by a worm, and who is insensitive to cows in mourning or at least cows dressed as such. While sailors struggle against a raging storm, Pigeon sleeps in his nest. When a city avoids destruction, Pigeon burns. Pigeon coos about his special relationship to a superior god, but to this god's display of mercy to a rival, he echoes Juno's lament about her husband Jupiter, who transformed into constellations ones that she had cursed, Why bother announcing harm if it will only result in the elevation of rivals? The comic can, of course, help us to reflect on serious matters. A basic issue raised in this ancient story is how professed beliefs correspond, or don't correspond, with actions and attitudes. Since ancient times, a result, if not an intention, of religion is to make the professed God as small as possible. God might be hailed as omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, but at the same time become so small that nothing of interest can be added to our in-group's portrayal of the divine, so limited in power that the God can be manipulated to serve our way of life, and so localized that the god will not see or be seen when we are worshiping gods of, say, hedonism, materialism, nationalism, or racism. The Bible, along with the core texts of other religions and philosophies, has plenty of material that can be used to support in-group senses of superior knowledge, self-content, and self-serving exercise of power. But, It also has plenty of material to challenge smugness, narrowness, and oppression. The story of Jonah, Pigeon, challenges narrow-minded and mean-spirited religion. This is one reason why in my translations of ancient Hebrew literature, I use the Divine One instead of God. It is a check against assuming one's own notions about God are fully at play in literature produced over 2,000 years ago. It is also, I hope, an encouragement for those who are skeptical about small God religion to continually consider basic issues of life with the help of the best of religion and philosophy, art, and science. If God has become too small, another expression such as the divine, the transcendent, the ideal, may help us grow in appreciation of and healthy response to goodness, beauty, peace. One other note before our reading of Pigeon, you will hear several expressions repeated throughout the story. This reflects repetition in the Hebrew that serves to connect parts of the story. 
the set of sentences joined by a repeated expression will involve progressions, contrasts, and similarities that contribute to character or thematic development beyond what is conveyed by the basic plot. For example, the repeated use of go down invites reflecting on how Pigeon's geographical descent from stability in the hills to the depths of chaos is a metaphor for psychological, spiritual descent. Now, the story of Pigeon. So then, Yahweh commissioned the prophet Pigeon, Faithful's son. Get going to the great city Nineveh. Call out against it, because its oppression troubles even heaven. Pigeon got going in the opposite direction. He wanted to go far across the sea to flee from Yahweh. He went down from Israel's hills to a Palestinian port town. He found a boat returning to Tarshish far across the sea and paid its fare. He went down into the boat to travel with the crew. He was headed far across the sea to flee from Yahweh. They set sail. Yahweh hurled the great wind into Chaos Sea, causing a great storm upon Chaos Sea. The ship saw itself breaking apart. Every sailor, filled with fear, cried out to his divinity. They hurled cargo into Chaos Sea to keep it from dragging them under. As for Pigeon, he had gone down into the boat's lowest part and sunk into a deep sleep. The captain found him and shook him awake. How can you sleep? Get going. Call out to your divinity. Maybe he'll let us survive. The sailors decided to use the right of dropping bones to find out who was responsible for their oppression. They let the bones drop. The marked bone dropped in front of Pigeon. They questioned him. Please tell us what you have done to bring on this oppression. What is your mission? Where are you from? What's your land and tribe? Pigeon answered, A Hebrew, that's what I am, and Yahweh, the Divine One of Heaven, Creator of the sea and dry land, is the one whom I worship in fear. He went on to reveal to them that he was running away from Yahweh. The mortals were filled with a great fear. They exclaimed, How could you have done this? The storm continued to rage. They asked, How are we to treat you to keep chaos from overcoming us? He answered, Pick me up and hurl me into chaos, and it will not overcome you. I know without a doubt that this storm of such great force is against you because of me. The mortals tried to get back to dry land. They could not. The storm continued to rage against them. They called out to Yahweh this time. Please, Yahweh, we beg of you, let us survive in spite of this man. Don't hold us accountable for his death. Without a doubt, Yahweh, you bring about what you wish. 
They picked Pigeon up. They hurled him into Chaos Sea. Immediately, its fury ceased. The mortals were filled with the great fear of Yahweh. They offered sacrifices to Yahweh and made vows. Yahweh provided a fish of great size to swallow pigeon. The fish had pigeon in its belly for three full days. Pigeon prayed to Yahweh, his divinity, from inside the fish. Swallowed by death, I called out to Yahweh. You threw me into the deepest of all waters. While your waves rolled above me and crashed against the shore, your currents pulled me to the bottom of the sea. Chaos weeds wrapped around me. I thought, I've been banished from your presence. In darkest despair, I remembered you, looked toward your temple, and prayed. My prayer reached you there. With songs of praise, I will offer you sacrifices and keep my promises. Adherents of emptiness will leave their commitment. I went down to be buried beneath the mountains, but you, Yahweh, my divinity, giver of life, brought me up from the abyss. Yahweh heard me and responded, Yahweh is a liberator. Yahweh spoke to the fish. It vomited pigeon onto the dry land. So then, Yahweh commissioned the prophet Pigeon, get going to the great city Nineveh, call out to it in keeping with what I tell you to call out. Pigeon got going to Nineveh this time in keeping with Yahweh's commission. Nineveh was a great city. It took three days to walk from one end to the other. Pigeon had begun to enter the city, walking for a day, when he called out, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be turned upside down. Those in Nineveh believed the Divine One. They called for a fast. Everyone, from the greatest to the least, put on clothes to show that they were in mourning. The news came as a blow to the king. He got off his throne, took off his robe, wore clothes to show that he was in mourning, sat in the dust, and called out. Listen to the decree of the king and his great ones. No person and no animal under their care shall have a bite of food or a drop of water. All people and their animals are to be covered with clothing that shows they are in mourning and they are to do nothing but call out to the Divine One. All are to turn away from their oppressive ways. Who knows? The Divine One might feel sorry for us, turn away from the anger which burns inside him and allow us to survive. The Divine One saw what they did, that they turned away from their oppressive ways. The Divine One felt sorry for them, not wanting to oppress them. He did not. A great sense of oppression filled Pigeon. He burned within. He prayed to Yahweh, Isn't this how it was when I was back home? Isn't this why I fled for the other side of the sea? Without a doubt, you're an extremely compassionate divinity, very patient, completely committed, not wanting to oppress anyone. 
Now, here's my request, Yahweh. Please kill me. My death is a good thing, better than my life. Yahweh asked, Does your burning within bring about good? Pigeon left the city to sit east of it. He made a shelter there, sat inside in its darkness, waiting to see what would happen to the city. Yahweh, the divine one, provided a bush. It rose up above Pigeon to increase the darkness, to diminish his sense of oppression. Pigeon felt a great happiness about the bush. The divine one provided a worm at dawn the next day. It attacked the bush. The bush dried up. At sunrise, the divinity provided a scorching wind from the desert. The sun beat down on Pigeon. He was miserable and wished himself dead. My death is a good thing, better than my life. The divine one asked Pigeon, Does your inner burning because of the plant bring about good? The answer, It's good for me to burn until I die. Yahweh said, You feel sorry because of the bush, although you did nothing to make it great. It was a plant that could not survive from one night to the next. Might I not feel sorry for the great city Nineveh with its 120,000 inhabitants who can't tell their right hand from their left? And with its many animals? That's it. That's how it ends with an unanswered question. Two R's of our four-hour journey are especially prominent in the pigeon story, the R of reverence and the R of return. One Hebrew word can be translated fear, be afraid, be in awe, worship, and revere. Some modern translations use worship when the object of the verb is a deity and be afraid when it is some other force. The difference is more a reflection of contemporary attitudes than of ancient ones. The sailors with pigeon on board are filled with fear when the storm strikes, a fear filled with the sense of the divine as they call out to their deities. Their fear turns to a great fear when Pigeon reveals that the storm has been sent from the one that he ironically claims to, using three English words to translate the one Hebrew verb, worship in fear. When calm suddenly returns, great fear of the divine source of the storm is accompanied by displays of reverence for that deity. Vows and sacrifices are made. Whatever our view of God, we all may be like the sailors in viewing the source of our fear as one thing and then realizing that we actually fear something even more basic. And it may be that a basic source of fear is also an object of great devotion. When this is so, we have respect, awe, reverence. Rock climbing might be a metaphor or even a literal introduction to this notion. Fear of heights stems from a deeper fear of death, or at least lack of control. Recognition that sheer cliffs can be the source of one's death produces fear. But rituals of respect, physical, mental, psychological exercises, result in an awe-filled, reverent relationship with the cliffs and with life. The hour of return is also central to the pigeon story. As in other literature, 
The repetition of key words is a return, a return to a notion to reinforce, expand, or revise its significance in terms of the story's development. At a higher literary level, there is a return of situations. After pigeon is puked onto dry land, exact repetition of not just words but sentences signals a return to the commissioning situation that initiated the story. The portrayal of the Ninevites involves a thematic return to the portrayal of the sailors as avoiding disaster by respecting Pigeon's words. George Orwell comments on a semiotic and psychological return in this story. Pigeon's return to the womb, first to the womb of the ship, then to the womb of the fish of great size. Orwell tells of Henry Miller's response to one who said that in El Greco's paintings, people look like they've experienced the horror of being in the bellies of whales. Miller responds, Hold it. Being swallowed by a whale wouldn't be all that bad. Orwell expands on this idea. He writes, Being inside a whale is a very comfortable, cozy, home-like thought. Jonah was glad enough to escape, but in imagination and daydream, countless people have envied him. It is, of course, quite obvious why. The whale's belly is simply a womb, big enough for an adult. There you are, in the dark, cushioned space that exactly fits you, with the yards of blubber between yourself and reality, able to keep up an attitude of the completest indifference, no matter what happens. A storm that would sink all the battleships in the world would hardly reach you as an echo. Even the whale's own movements would probably be imperceptible to you. He might be wallowing among the surface waves or shooting down into the blackness of the middle seas, but you would never notice the difference. Short of being dead, it is the final, unsurpassable stage of irresponsibility. The essential Jonah act is allowing oneself to be swallowed, remaining passive, accepting. Short of being dead, Orwell says, and Freudians could use Pigeon's last words as indicating that his descent was a yielding to the death wish, unaware that he would return not only to the womb, but also to, borrowing an expression from the Psalms, spurting out of the womb and enabling others to more constructively pursue their life wish. Return is also the concern of those who hear Pigeon proclaim that things are about to be turned upside down. The Hebrew verb usually translated return when referring to physical actions is often translated by other expressions when referring to a moral, psychological, or spiritual return. The King James Version uses turn from, turn away, and repent to translate this one verb in a short section of Jonah. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil ways and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. The King James translators had God repenting more often than humans in the Hebrew literature. In modern translations, only humans repent. God changes his mind. 
both might be depicted as returning. The divine mind returns from thoughts of destruction to displays of mercy. Humans return from a society of oppression to one of justice and peace. It is this sense of turning away from what is destructive, of returning in thought and deed to what is just and true, of repentance, that Father Mappo considers in his sermon near the beginning of Moby Dick. Mappo's own humility, sincerity, and sense of guilt result in his sympathetic portrayal of Jonah as a fe fellow journeyer into chaos who survives by clinging to truth as the novel's narrator Ishmael would, at the end of the novel, survive shipwreck by clinging to a coffin life buoy. Here is a reading of Father Mappo's sermon, slightly edited and abridged. Shipmates, the book of Jonah, containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is that song in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the floods surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson. A lesson to us all as sinful people and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. As sinful people, it is a lesson to us all because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally the deliverance and joy of Jonah. As with all sinners among men, the sin of Jonah was in his willful disobedience of the command of God, which he found a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. With this sin of disobedience in him, Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. He thinks that a ship made by humans will carry him into countries where God does not reign, but only the captains of this earth. He skulks about the wharves of Joppa and seeks a ship that's bound for Tarshish, the modern Cadiz in Spain as far by water from Joppa as Jonah could possibly have sailed in those ancient days when the Atlantic was an almost unknown sea. See ye not then, shipmates, that Jonah sought to flee worldwide from God? Miserable man, oh, most contemptible and worthy of all scorn, with slouched hat and guilty eye skulking from his God, prowling among the shipping like a vile burglar hastening to cross the seas. 
So disordered, self-condemning is his look, that had there been police in those days, Jonah on the mere suspicion of something wrong had been arrested ere he touched a deck. How plainly he's a fugitive. No baggage, not a hat box, valise, or carpet bag. No friends accompany him to the wharf with, with their adieu. At last, after much dodging search, he finds the Tarsus ship receiving the last items of her cargo. And as he steps on board to see its captain in the cabin, all the sailors for the moment desist from hoisting in the goods to mark the stranger's evil eye. Jonah sees this. But in vain he tries to look all ease and confidence, in vain essays his wretched smile. Strong intuitions of the man assure the mariners he can be no innocent. In their gamesome but still serious way, one whispers to the other, Jack, he's robbed a widow. Or, Joe, do you mark him? He's a bigamist. Or, Harry lad, I guess he's the adulterer that broke jail in old Gomorrah, or like one of the missing murderers from Sodom. Another runs to read the poster that stuck against the spile upon the wharf to which the ship is moored, offering 500 gold coins for the apprehension of a parricide and containing a description of his person. He reads and looks from Jonah to the poster while all his sympathetic shipmates now crowd round Jonah, prepared to lay their hands upon him. Frighted, Jonah trembles, and summoning all his boldness to his face, only looks so much the more a coward. He will not confess himself suspected, but that itself is strong suspicion, so he makes the best of it. And when the sailors find him not to be the man that is advertised, they let him pass, and he descends into the cabin. Who's there? cries the captain at his busy desk, hurriedly making out his papers for the customs. Who's there? Oh, how that harmless question mangles Jonah. For the instant he almost turns to flee again, but he rallies. I seek a passage in this ship to Tarshish. How soon sail ye, sir? Thus far the busy captain had not looked up to Jonah, though the man now stands before him, but no sooner does he hear that hollow voice than he darts a scrutinizing glance. We sail with the next coming tide, at last he slowly answered, still intently eyeing him. No sooner, sir? Soon enough for any honest man that goes a passenger. Ha! Jonah, that's another stab. But he swiftly calls away the captain from that scent. I'll sail with ye, he says. The passage money, how much is that? I'll pay now. For it is particularly written, shipmates, as if it were a thing not to be overlooked in this history, that he paid the fare thereof ere the crafted sail. And taken with the context, this is full of meaning. Now, Jonah's captain, shipmates was one whose discernment detects crime in any, but whose greed exposes it only in the penniless. In this world, shipmates, sin that pays its way can travel freely and without a passport, whereas virtue, if a pauper, is stopped at all frontiers. So Jonah's captain prepares to test the length of Jonah's purse ere he judge him openly, 
He charges him thrice the usual sum, and it's assented to. Then the captain knows that Jonah is a fugitive, but at the same time resolves to help a flight that paves its rear with gold. Yet when Jonah fairly takes out his purse, prudent suspicion still molests the captain. He rings every coin to find a counterfeit. Not a forger anyway, he mutters, and Jonah is put down for his passage. Point out my stateroom, sir, says Jonah now. I'm travel-weary. I need sleep. Thou lookest like it, says the captain. There's thy room. Jonah enters and would lock the door, but the lock contains no key. Hearing him foolishly fumbling there, the captain laughs lowly to himself and mutters something about the doors of convict cells being never allowed to be locked within. All dressed and dusty as he is, Jonah throws himself into his berth and finds the little stateroom ceiling almost resting on his forehead. The air is close, and Jonah gasps. Then in that contracted hole, sunk too beneath the ship's waterline, Jonah feels the heralding presentiment of that stifling hour when the whale shall hold him in the smallest of his bowels' wards. Screwed at its axis against the side, a swinging lamp slightly oscillates in Jonah's room, and the ship, heeling over towards the wharf with the weight of the last bales received, the lamp, flame and all, though in slight motion, still maintains a permanent obliquity with reference to the room. Though, in truth, infallibly straight itself, it but made obvious the false lying levels among which it hung. The lamp alarms and frightens Jonah, as lying in his berth his tormented eyes roll round the place, and this thus far successful fugitive finds no refuge for his restless glance. But that contradiction in the lamp more and more appalls him. The floor, the ceiling, and the side are all awry. Oh, so my conscience hangs in me, he groans. Straight upwards, so it burns but the chambers of my soul are all in crookedness. Like one who after a night of drunken revelry hies to his bed, still reeling, but with conscience yet pricking him as the plungings of the Roman racehorse, but so much the more strike his steel tags into him, as one who in that miserable plight still turns and turns in giddy anguish, praying God for annihilation until the fit be passed, and at last, amid the whirl of woe he feels, a deep stupor steals over him as over the man who bleeds to death, for conscience is the wound and there's naught to staunch it. So after sore wrestlings in his birth, Jonah's prodigy of ponderous misery drags him drowning down to sleep. And now the time of tide has come. The ship casts off her cables and from the deserted wharf, the uncheered ship for Tarshish, all careening, glides to sea. That ship, my friends, was the first of recorded smugglers. The contraband was Jonah. But the sea rebels. It will not bear the wicked burden. A dreadful storm comes on. The ship is like to break. But now when the boat swain calls all hands to lighten her, when boxes, bales, and jars are clattering overboard, when the wind is shrieking and the men are yelling and every plank thunders with trampling feet right over Jonah's head, in all this raging tumult, 
Jonah sleeps his hideous sleep. He sees no black sky and raging sea, feels not the reeling timbers, and little hears he or heeds he the far rush of the mighty whale, which even now with open mouth is cleaving the sea after him. Aye, shipmates, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, a berth in the cabin as I have taken it, and was fast asleep. But the frightened master comes to him and shrieks in his dead ear, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise! Startled from his lethargy by that direful cry, Jonah staggers to his feet and, stumbling to the deck, grasps a shroud to look out upon the sea. But at that moment he is sprung upon by a panther billow leaping over the bulwarks. Wave after wave thus leaps into the ship, and finding no speedy vent runs roaring fore and aft till the mariners come nigh to drowning while yet afloat. And ever, as the white moon shows her affrighted face from the steep gullies in the blackness overhead, aghast, Jonah sees the rearing bowsprit pointing high upward, but soon beat downward again towards the tormented deep. Terrors upon terrors run shouting through his soul. In all his cringing attitudes, the god-fugitive is now too plainly known. The sailors mark him. More and more certain grow their suspicion of him, and at last, fully to test the truth, by referring the whole matter to high heaven, they fall to casting lots to see for whose cause this great tempest was upon them. The lot is Jonah's, that discovered, then how furiously they mob him with their questions. What is thine occupation? Whence cometh thou? Thy country? What people? But mark now, my shipmates, the behavior of poor Jonah. The eager mariners, but ask him who he is and where from, whereas they not only receive an answer to those questions, but likewise another answer to a question not put by them. But the unsolicited answer is forced from Jonah by the hard hand of God that is upon him. I am a Hebrew, he cries, and then, I fear the Lord God of heavens who hath made the sea and the dry land. Fear him, O Jonah? Aye, well, mightest thou fear the Lord God then? Straightway he now goes on to make a full confession, whereupon the mariners become more and more appalled, but still are pitiful. For when Jonah, not yet supplicating God for mercy, since he, he but too well knew the darkness of his deserts, when wretched Jonah cries out to them to take him and cast him forth into the sea, for he knew that for his sake this great tempest was upon them, they mercifully turn from him and seek by other means to save the ship. But all in vain, the indignant gale howls louder than with one hand raised invokingly to God, with the other they not unreluctantly lay hold of Jonah. And now, behold, Jonah taken up as an anchor and dropped into the sea, when instantly an oily calmness floats out from the east, and the sea is still as Jonah carries down the gale with him, leaving smooth water behind. He goes down in the whirling heart of such a masterless commotion that he scarce heeds the moment when he drops seething into the yawning jaws awaiting him.
and the whale shoots to all his ivory teeth like so many white bolts upon his prison. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord out of the fish's belly. But observe his prayer and learn a weighty lesson. For sinful as he is, Jonah does not weep and wail for direct deliverance. He feels that his dreadful punishment is just. He leaves all his deliverance to God, contenting himself with this, that spite of all his pains and pangs, he will still look towards God's holy temple. And here, shipmates, is true and faithful repentance, not clamorous for pardon, but grateful for punishment. And how pleasing to God was this conduct in Jonah is shown in the eventual deliverance of him from the sea and the whale. Shipmates, I do not place Jonah before you to be copied for his sin, but I do place him before you as a model for repentance. Sin not, but if you do, take heed to repent of it like Jonah. Shipmates, God has laid but one hand upon you, both his hands press upon me. I have read ye by what murky light may be mine, the lesson that Jonah teaches to all sinners. And therefore to ye, and still more to me, for I am a greater sinner than ye. And now how gladly would I come down from this masthead and sit on the hatches there where you sit and listen as you listen, while someone of you reads me that other and more awful lesson which Jonah teaches to me as a pilot of the living God. How being an anointed pilot prophet or speaker of true things and bidden by the Lord to sound those unwelcome truths in the ears of a wicked Nineveh, Jonah, appalled at the hostility he should raise, fled from his mission and sought to escape his duty and his God by taking ship at Joppa. But God is everywhere. Tarshish, he never reached. As we have seen, God came upon him in the whale and swallowed him down to living gulfs of doom and with swift slantings tore him along into the midst of the seas where the eddying depths sucked him ten thousand fathoms down and the weeds were wrapped about his head and all the watery world of woe howled over him. Yet even then beyond the reach of any plummet, out of the belly of hell, when the whale grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, even then God heard the engulfed, repenting prophet when he cried. Then God spake unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of the sea, the whale came breaching up towards the warm and pleasant sun and all the delights of air and earth, and vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. When the word of the Lord came a second time, and Jonah bruised and beaten, his ears like two seashells still multitudinously murmuring of the ocean, Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth to the face of falsehood. That was it. This, shipmates, 
This is that other lesson, and woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him who this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the waters when God has brewed them into a gale. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be true, even though to be false were salvation. Eh, woe to him who, as the great pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others, is himself a castaway. But, oh, shipmates, on the starboard hand of every woe there is a sure delight, and higher the top of that delight than the bottom of the woe is deep. Is not the main truck higher than the Keltson is low? The light is to those who against the proud gods and commodores of this earth ever stand forth their own inexorable selves. The light is to those whose strong arms yet support them when the ship of this base, treacherous world has gone down beneath them. The light is to those who give no quarter in the truth and kill, burn, and destroy all sin, though they pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. The light Top gallant delight is to those who acknowledge no law or Lord, but the Lord his God, and those who are only patriots to heaven. Delight is to those whom all the waves of the billows of the seas of the boisterous mob can never shake from this sure keel of the ages. And eternal delight and deliciousness will be for those who can say with their final breath, O Father, chiefly known to me by thy rod, mortal or immortal, here I die. I have striven to be thine more than to be this world's or mine own. Yet this is nothing. I leave eternity to thee. For what are humans that they should live out the lifetime of their God? Amen.